This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Out of the Box, our ongoing series where we explore alternative ways to teach and learn, which is done in collaboration with Anyaman Preschool. My guest today is Kiran Birsetti. She's a designer, a teacher, an education reformer and social entrepreneur. Unhappy with the rigidity and unfriendly atmosphere she encountered in her young son's school at the time, she took matters into her own hands and set up the Riverside School back in 2001, which was designed to shake up attitudes towards early years education by placing empathy and creativity at the heart of the curriculum. So this alternative model focuses on quality of learning, student well-being and empathy in education, which I guess, you know, may seem like no-brainer ideals, but it was, in fact, a game-changing move in parts of India and now across the world. And Kiran, who is the founder and director of the Riverside School and Design for Change, joins me now to share more. Welcome, Kiran. How are you today? Oh, thank you so much, Juliet, for having me. Um, I'm feeling good and ready for today's interview. Okay, excellent. It's such a pleasure to speak to you today. I'm really excited. I watched your TED Talk. I think I watched it like five times already. Really inspirational. So let's share that story with our listeners today. Um, So you, of course, have a a background in design, as I mentioned, right? And if I'm correct, you also come from a family of designers. Can you tell me a little bit about why design uh, was something that you were interested in and, and that, you know, has shaped a lot of, you know, the work that you do? Well, as, like you said, I think my introduction to design was first with my father, who happened to be uh, one of the first machine tool designers in India, because till then, a lot of the design that used to happen in India, especially in the machine tool industry, was from Germany. Hmm. And my father happened to be um, uh, one of the first designers who designed an enterprise series late for the company he was working with. So I think the introduction about aesthetics, about design, about uh, future-oriented sort of work just sort of happened because of the conversations that used to happen at home. And then subsequently, the uh, National Institute of Design was kind of uh, created in uh, the city I am in Ahmedabad in 1966. And design was very new. Hmm. In all fairness, it still is a new vocabulary for lots of people. But the Design Institute kind of reshaped the whole idea of optimism about human centeredness in in creating design uh, solutions. And my sister then happened to go to this to the Institute um, for her undergrad and came back with stories of, you know, just how wonderful it was and how energizing the program is and how what a wonderful way to see the world. And I think that sort of sparked my interest. And uh, then, like I said, I joined the Institute in uh, 1983. And I have to say, that first introduction to what learning can look like was really the moment I walked into those gates. Mm. You know, you could feel the, the difference. You could feel people leaning in and listening to you. You could feel the idea of interest and the idea of passion. It was so, uh, I keep saying, contagious that I was hooked. And I think for me, I believe unbeknownst to me, it planted the seeds of finally what Riverside uh, was created on. You know, that, that whole experience of being involved in your education, not being just a passive recipient of information and in education. So I think all of that was my my foray into design. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, and it's so interesting. What do you explain, right? That those experiences we have in school versus what we have in in university or in college. I think that's quite universal. Uh, you know, from, it happens in many countries. I know it happens here in Malaysia. And and that was something that uh, you also realized when uh, your five year old son, at the time, of course, he was just having not a great time at school. Right? He was coming back, you know, with this sort of defeatist attitude. Um, maybe you can share that story about you know what sort of sparked you to to start the Riverside School. Yeah, you know, uh, my like I said, my interest into education really happened only when I became a mother. Mm. And I think encountering uh, a system where my child would come home every single day without any kind of involvement in uh, the process, you know, he just happened to be incidental to the program. He didn't know why he was doing what he was doing. Uh, He was just one of 60 other children in the class. Uh, The teacher didn't even know his name. So it was all of that that very often we take for granted, unfortunately. We kind of say, oh, well, this is the system. This is what yeah. how it's always been, right? Yeah, yeah. And as mothers, unfortunately, we don't really pay attention to the fact that we can be agents of change and we could we, we have a choice. So I think, I, I mean, uh, uh, the idea of responding to the situation as a parent was, oh my God, this can't be it, right? Mm. But as a designer... I think it offered me an opportunity to say, but there must be another way. Mm-hmm. You know, what if? Yeah, yeah. And I think so. So the the the, the ability to choose um, a way forward rather than just sit and complain and take for for granted that this is the way it's always been. I think I attribute to my education in design. Had I probably not been a designer, I might have also been like just about everybody else saying, oh well come on, this is the way it's always been. I turned out all right. And, you know, what can one person do? Uh, so I think for me as a designer to to, to offer myself the opportunity to say that, listen, there's no point in complaining. If you really want to change something, well, go ahead and do it. <laughs> subsequently, I took my son out of school and pretty much I was not really interested in changing education. I have to be very clear. Hmm. It was not about the system. It was really about my son's experience. And for that, I felt eminently capable, right? I said, okay, for, for my son's experience, I am, I am capable. I, I have uh, the skill sets. And, and, I, and pretty much then they say the rest is history. So I started the school in my home and then subsequently it's been 21 years now. That's amazing. And I was reading that your son is now, both your children actually, are also involved in the school today, aren't they? Yes, they are. (laughs) That's wonderful. And I mean, interestingly, it was after meeting his teacher that you said, I can do this better. And and this idea of I can is something that, you know, you talk about a lot, you focus a lot uh, on. Um, I watched your TED Talk, as I mentioned, and you spoke about the I can bug and how you were infected by it uh, at the age of 17. Um, and, And maybe you can just tell us a little bit about that. Or was that pretty much going to university and, and that's how that changed. Yes, uh, that, like I said, was my experience at mm, the design okay. college when I kind of walked in and and for the first time, I think my, my understanding of what learning uh, can look and feel and sound like was really only when I was at the design college. So I think for me, uh, those elements, those experiences gave me the understanding that agency, you know, the, the whole idea of agency comes from the idea of being involved, being being a participant and being a collaborator in the learning journey, not just a recipient. Mm. And that really is the governing principle of design thinking, right? You work with the user, you don't work for the user. Yes, yes. 
And so I think in, in that uh, understanding, the idea of I can emerges because no longer are you saying, oh, the teacher told me or my faculty told me or the, the principal told me. It comes from a sense of ownership and agency and that really helps build and cultivate the mindset of I can. And that's pretty much what I experienced and then recognize that when I did, of course, want to start the school, I said every child must experience that sense of agency with empathy, not just agency for oneself, but the agency for the greater good. And for me, that was really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, since you weren't hindered by, let's say, an existing background in education, right? You weren't hindered by, you know, these models, these pedagogies and things like that, right? So it was a completely different approach that you took in that sense. Yeah, I, I, I think it was super liberating <laughs> that I didn't come from education. <laughs> I keep saying, I, I mean, not to kind of dismiss or, or diminish, uh, yes, you know, of course, yes. education. It is really, but I think because I didn't have to follow any rules. And I think in design thinking, again, the first thing that we designers do is question the status quo, right? Not just receive the status quo and say, let me do something a little bit more creative. But it is to very question the very premise of why does this exist? How is this useful? Does this make learning happen, right? Mm. So because I didn't come from education, I had the liberty to ask those questions, which maybe a lot of people were not asking. And that gave me uh, the freedom to kind of you know, just shift the narrative, invite the user into the conversation, learn from them. So really my experts were not education theorists, but it is really the children. And they were all of six years old. They became my experts. They are the brilliant ones, actually, really, right? (laughs) Um, And Riverside School, as I mentioned earlier, is built on a set of four key principles, right? So that's feel, imagine, do and share. Um, Can you talk to me about why these are the sort of four principles that you focus on? You know, why was it designed as such? In all fairness, FIDS, uh, which is really feel, imagine, do, share, is really a demystification of the design thinking process that I um, had my education in, Mm. right? It all starts with empathy, then you do the iterative process of of imagine, then you do the prototyping of the, you know, refinement, and then, of course, you basically come up with a solution. So... uh, uh, in my head, I kept thinking, my God, this is such a powerful framework that it has to be used for both a pedagogical framework for the team to use to design structures and curriculum and timetable and space. But it also became a pr- framework of empowerment for the children to use. So, you know, when we keep talking about, oh, my children should be agents of change. Very often we don't know how should they do this, right? So the how is the feel, imagine, do, share. So if you start with empathy, always, if you start with feel rather than jumping into do, because if you jump into do straight away without doing the feel and imagine, very often when you ask somebody, why are you doing this? They'll say, I don't know, I was told to do this, (laughs) correct? And it doesn't become the I can. But the feel and imagine are two extremely powerful steps that happen before the do. The field starts with understanding the user, not just the problem, the user, right? The empathy, then working with the user to imagine what change would look like, because then the do is shaped from the who and the what, not just uh, I will do it. So I think for us, that framework and that process allows for solutions to be more user centered. And then, of course, for uh, the use, uh, so the designer, which I keep saying my children are, to take ownership for the design process or of their learning process. So the FIDS become such a powerful universal framework to be able to action change, you know, for the yeah. greater good. 
that that's really why foods are so powerful. Okay. All right. Let's just go for one quick break here. When we come back, let's talk about how, you know, the school actually runs, you know, what a, what a classroom looks like, I suppose. I can imagine us, many Asian parents here just wondering, but what about the maths? What about the English and language? <laughs> we'll come back and discuss that after this quick break. I'm speaking today to Kiran Birsetti. She's the founder and director of the Riverside School and Design for Change. It's another episode of Out of the Box. We'll be back after this quick break. You're listening to Out of the Box on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Out of the Box, our ongoing series where we explore alternative ways to teach and learn, which is done in collaboration with the Anyaman Preschool. My guest today is Kiran Birsetti. She's a designer, a teacher, education reformer, social entrepreneur, and she's the founder and director of the Riverside School and Design for Change. And we are talking about, you know, both the design for, uh, design for Change and Riverside School. So before the break, Kiran, you were explaining, you know, uh, that those four principles, right? FIDS, uh, feel, imagine, do and share and why they are such important principles, you know. Um, and, and I know that the school itself is not textbook heavy. It doesn't require resources. And, you know, as I said before the break, I can imagine a lot of parents saying, "But so what are they actually learning? You know, where <laughs> where is the education bit? What does, uh, I mean, can you walk me through what your classroom and school uh, actually looks like? <laughs> no, I, I love this because, you know, I think this whole idea of what happens to the math, science and English? <laughs> you know, I, I have to say, of course, before I explain to you, but the Riverside children outperform the top 10 schools in India in math, science and English. Well done. And the reason I say this is because this is not an either or. It's not content or character. It is content and character, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's really what the Riverside curriculum has been designed around. The fact that on a daily basis, you have an opportunity to build both, you know, the content of your curriculum, but the content of your character as well. So we have moments and times through the whole day where we always start with what we call a learning um, circle, right? It's a circle where you start with uh, a conversation, you check in with each other, you kind of make sure that you are ready for the day. So it's called a conglom. So it's a collaborative circle, which is a, which is a time for relationships. And that lends itself to what they call the agenda. So together, the teachers and the students craft the agenda for the day. What will they like to learn? And who will they like to be as learners? So they kind of put down this beautiful kind of day and what it will look like. Subsequently, they walk into the actual learning moments. And those could be self-directed. It could be group work. It could be individual work. So that will be what either your explicit conceptual understanding, like say fractions or quadratic equations, it could also be client projects that they've received from the city. Mm. Or it also could be you know, academic challenges that they embark on. So it could be one of any of these. And then at the end of the day, you have something called closing the loop. It's a reflective time when you when you look at the day and say, did I did I achieve or did I accomplish what I set out to do? Right. So if I just take with you a single day, every single day has been crafted around what we call the both and model content and character. Right. And then, of course, then every day goes into the other days and then you craft an entire year, which is filled with lots of opportunities for children to engage, you know, with service. If they engage with each other, they engage with the society, lots of the projects that they can kind of do. So that's really what the day is. The fact that children are engaged and they take ownership of the learning, they are reading more. They're writing more. They're doing complex, uh, uh, complicated and complex problem solving more. So because they're exercising in real time and real projects, mm -hmm. their ability to then, you know, showcase their understanding in what your academic concepts are is a given. 
right? So you're not doing the other way. You're not saying, I will ask you to stop thinking and memorize your content and then ask you to deliver. Yeah. So that's really what the approach to learning is what we've crafted. We've tested this now for 21 years. We've codified all of these and, and we're supporting schools across the world now to be able to reimagine even their regular timetables as uh, you know, what we call an I can timetable. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because they're putting into practice everything there and then as a child, because you are empowering them, you are telling them that you can do that, you know, not that, yeah, we're going to practice now so that you can do it when you're ad- an adult or something like that, right? It's everything that you learn, you can actually make use of it right now. And that's so important. I think that's amazing. And um, in 2007, you guys also, I mean, the Riverside students I, I was reading inspired a campaign called Approach, a protagonist in every child. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, in fact, we're celebrating 15 years of that this year. Oh, congrats. Um, yeah, so in 2007, my my then, the first batch were in grade seven, and they were talking about when they would go home, where would they play? And and it just sort of turned out that they all would go home and they would sit at, at home because the parents were not very comfortable that the children could play on the streets of the city. Mm-hmm. And I grew up playing on the streets of the city, right, And when I was young. And so in that conversation, we started realizing, my God, the city doesn't have safe spaces for children. How is that possible? And that sparked this entire initiative of how do you make cities child friendly? How can every child be a protagonist of the city? And the children then went and met the municipal corporate, you know, the, the municipality, the police commissioner, the traffic police and everything to be able to visibly create spaces in the city, which will be for children and childhood. And that pretty much started in 2007, where we closed down the busiest street for traffic and made it into a playground for children. It was such a metaphor of a city slowing down and closing up a piece of its city for the child. And that subsequently became a moment of the city. And then we took the parks over. Then we took the cinema theaters to say, listen, well, how can a child from the street be able to, you know, witness cinema in this beautiful sort of, you know, uh, venue? So. Eventually, we started opening up multiple spaces of the city for children. So it's an open source idea. It's free. It's for all children. And it becomes such a great collaborative and community space. So that's really what we started in 2007. And we're celebrating 15 years of it this year. Mm-hmm. And, and you got the city the title of India's first child-friendly city, yes. isn't it? Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. That's wonderful. And of course, as you mentioned, that is uh, something that continues today. And it's it's not just for your city, it's expanded to many other different cities in India as well and across the world? Across the world as well. We've got a couple of countries that have, uh, have started because it's all open source. Open source the material yeah. is, is on, on the website and cities can, I know, uh, you know, People can just choose to take that open source material and use it. Okay, all right. And then uh, if if I can just move on, you know, in 2009, you expanded on the principles practice at Riverside and you founded something called the Design for Change Movement. Uh, Can you tell our listeners what that is about? Yeah, in fact, uh, that was uh, a really, really important uh, year for uh, Riverside. So it really kind of was was sparked by a conversation a friend of, was having with me regarding getting uh, India to uh, to celebrate a festival of giving. You know, on October second, which is Gandhi's uh, Mahatma Gandhi's birthday, mm. he said, "What would what wouldn't be fantastic to have India have a festival of celebration of of giving." So he was crafting this this big plan and, you know, he's getting all the adults to take part and corporates to take part and companies to take part. And I said, you have to get children to understand this uh, this idea of giving. 
So he said, why don't you do that? And it really was a conversation as simple as that. I said, okay. I mean, I know that the feel, imagine, do, share principles are alive and, uh, uh, and I've seen the impact of that with the children. Why don't we give it to all children across India? So in 2009, we created a simple toolkit, uh, translated that into 10 languages, Indian languages, and pretty much reached 30,000 schools in India across every kind of profile from the village school to the tribal school to the urban school. And pretty much asked children to say, we said, take one week, use the Feel, Imagine, Do, Chef framework and change the world. And it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, we received a thousand stories of change from, from children across India. We started saying, my God, here are the superheroes. These are the children, you know. <laughs> India is alive and well, and you've got all of these children, you know, we're, we're in good hands. And that pretty much started. And then, like I said, I had the opportunity to speak on TED to share the story. And that's when it went viral and then we kind of went global. But it started with that simple premise to say, how can children, you know, use the Feel, Imagine, Do, Share framework and change their world? We were not asking them to change the world. We were saying, change your world, you know, get that agency, get that I can belief and make sure that you can, if you can continue to build that belief system through all your schooling, one day you will change the world. That, that was the whole promise. Mm-hmm. And it's been widely adopted, as, as you mentioned, right? I mean, the, how many countries has it uh, been adopted in now? I think more and than... Now in 63 countries. 63, yeah. okay. Yeah. We've reached over 2 million children who have been using this framework. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, as you mentioned, it's all open source, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, we have a terrific partner in Malaysia as well, uh, who uh, the Impact Hub takes. Uh, they are, are Design for Change partners. In fact, in this year, in November, we're celebrating our global celebration in Malaysia. In oh, the lovely. Yes. So you'll be in here, you'll be in town, I hope. I will be there, yes. And 20 other countries will be coming to Malaysia. So it'll be fantastic. Okay, okay. We will definitely catch up then. And um, yes. I'm just also curious, you know, like, you know, when you came up with all of this and when you were starting the school and, and you know, trying to get, I guess, more people into it. I mean, what sort of, um, and I'm sure this happened, what sort of feedback did you get? Did you kind of get like, you know, brick brats? Uh, did, did people, were people thinking like, this is too risky? This is, you know, yeah, criticism, I suppose. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean it's, it's completely meaningless because, you know, I, I really... <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I couldn't care less, frankly. I mean, I think my, we, even as a team, I remember the first uh, five and then, of course, I, uh, while we were building the school, we were so involved and and, and literally, we had blinkers, right? Mm. Not to say in a wrong way to say, oh, we were not looking at what the world was doing, but we just were so caught up in learning ourselves that we had no reason or desire for approval. We just were seeking meaning, right? So we were not seeking approval or your validation or whatever. So I think for us, it was such a deeply immersive um, learning journey that we were on that it just became an all-consuming focus. So, I mean, were there people who didn't believe? Of course there are. I'm still are. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it doesn't, doesn't take any space in my mind. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's wonderful to hear. And uh, I kind of, yeah, I wanted to hear that from you as well. You know, when you believe in something, have that I can attitude and just go ahead and do it. And I, I, I guess, you know, I can imagine some of our listeners asking, what have your students gone on to do? You know, I mean, it's, the school has been around for 20 years now. Uh, I mentioned your children who are helping out with the school now. But tell me a little bit about some of your other uh, graduates. 
Well, a lot of my, we've got 10 batches that have now graduated mm-hmm. and we've actually been we're tracking them over the years. And in fact, just this year, the Good Project at Harvard did a wonderful study. They kind of uh, did um, research with uh, our alumni as well as our 2020 batch. And it's stunning. It's stunning what the results have come out in terms of what they have found most meaningful, what they're doing in life. Uh, academically, of course, it just seems to be so easy. In fact, uh, we've been just tracking their achievements. They're starting clubs in school in, in colleges. They're on the dean's list. They're, you know, doing or some of them are doing higher studies. And just now the first two batches are in the workspace. And what's super interesting for me is from that first two batches, at least 80 percent are entrepreneurs. And that for me is super exciting, you know, that the fact that they've been able to follow their passions into a profession and they've been taking the courage. So we've got we've got pilots and we've got designers and we've got people who started foundations. We have got um, uh, actors. We have got I'm sure one of them is going to be a politician. You know, So <laughs> we've got a myriad range rather than, you know, uh, 20 managers or 20, you know, uh, sort of engineers. So we've got such a wonderful range. And for me, that has been really, really satisfying to see that they've taken their passions and they've committed to that and they've been able to start their own setups and, you know, uh, be brave about that. For me, that has been great. And anecdotes have been fantastic. I've got girls who say, you know, we've had the power to say no. I've got boys who write to me from engineering colleges to say, you know, everybody laughs when I say thank you to the canteen boy. But now they all are helping that canteen boy. We've got, you know, just those tiny little anecdotes that say that in that little world that they are in, they're shaping it and they're making it a little better. So I think for me, that has been really, really heartening. Yeah. And, and you know, as you mentioned, you know, placing empathy and, and creativity at the heart of the curriculum. I mean, we're just, you're just helping to build good people, you know, which is something I feel that's lacking a little bit uh, in, in society today. And I, 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 when I watched your your TED Talk, you know, there was this lovely story that you shared about how you got your kids to roll incense sticks uh, for mm-hmm. eight hours. Maybe you can share that uh, story with our listeners as well. Yeah, you know, actually that started uh, really interestingly. I mean, I was very, very committed to the fact that our children uh, understand the difference between rights and duties mm-hmm. and know that they, they have to go together, right? Otherwise, we have this a lot of this narrative about, you know, I have the right to do this. Hello, you also have a duty to perform. And that's it has to go hand in hand, right? Yes. So that was what prompted this idea of how do we get children to, to recognize that? And it came from this experience that we crafted to say, okay, while you talk about rights, oh, I have a right to play, I have a right to good food, I have to, I have to love you. There are like around 19 child, children's rights. But every right has to be earned. And, you know, you have to earn this, especially for, uh, for the others as well. So while we were talking about it intellectually, we were reading out articles about children's rights that have been exploited. I saw my children saying, yeah, 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 it's very sad, or that's very bad. And I kept thinking that it was still an intellectual understanding. It was not in their bones. Mm -hmm. And only then when I crafted this experience and got them to actually go through the deprivation of rights that's when the when the body understands the experience only then will your mind shift right yeah. and that's really what the what the experience uh, just spontaneously then by the end of that that day my god the children were up in arms they're saying man this is terrible how can we do this blah, blah, blah. and then eventually it turned out to then going out into the streets and convincing people and making sure that they raised funds making sure they were kinder to each other 
but all had to come from an experience that went to their bones, you know, and that's really then eventually became a very significant uh, idea of our pedagogy, that we're not going to just tell you this intellectually, we're going to make sure your bones understand this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, just to be clear to our listeners, you know, you, you got the kids to roll incense for eight hours, right? For eight hours. To and that was the first time I have to say, now we do it over three days. <laughs> oh dear, okay. <laughs> You know, because also to to, to kind of get you to understand that in the third day, it definitely becomes easier, but that's the danger, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you just go into a role. You don't even awaken, you know? And so to tell them that, you know, it's so easy for a habit to form and therefore you have to be super uh, careful about what you're creating. So now, of course, it goes through over three days uh, experience. Okay. I would love to put my daughters through that as well. I'm just, you know, it's exactly what you say. You know, I tell them, oh, you know, there's poverty in the world. There's hunger in the world. But do they actually know what that means in their bones? No, they don't. So, yeah. yeah, So these are wonderful experiences for the students. And again, um, you know, I guess for anyone who's listening, you know, any parent, anyone who's unhappy with the way their children's education is going, I mean, what would you like to say to them? You know, uh, well, I think um, I'm not necessarily advocating that everybody start a school. Sure, sure. I, I, I think the, 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 the piece that I will definitely encourage you know, parents or adults to say that you do still have the agency to bring in these narratives with your children. I keep thinking that very often we succumb to the pressure of this mindless um, rote memorization, this idea of exams, et cetera, and think that's that's the way forward. But it isn't really true. And, and you can actually be able to build a child's kind of, you know, a worldview mm-hmm. on, on both, on both content and character. And I would encourage that rather than, uh, because I see that now there's so much of outsourcing of parenting to technology, right? Or keep yourself occupied, do the laptop, do the technology piece. But I think there is just so much to say about um, the heart and uh, everything starts with the heart. And I I would encourage parents to listen a little bit more, to have conversations more, to be able to um, to engage on that particular day. I keep saying, look at your child in the eyes. That's very, very important, you know, and and I I learned one thing very beautifully from Dr. Howard Gardner. He said, if you want to know what's happening in in people's homes, don't see what uh, parents uh, say at the dinner table, see what they do at a dinner table. Mm-hmm. And nowadays we don't even have dinner table conversations, you know, and that's a lot of it is because pa- children will maybe not listen to you, but they will always mimic you. Yeah. And you have to be worthy of being mimicked. You know, you have to live a life that is worthy of the fact that my child would, if they're imitating me, what are they imitating? Right. So I think it's an opportunity that we have. And I think we must hold on to, especially for the first uh, 15 years, because after that, it's pretty much done. So use this time. Well, laugh a lot. I keep saying there must be laughter in the homes. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> I keep saying, thinking that that's in short supply. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of that is something that I would, I have seen, I have learned, I've had to do at home, and I've seen how important that is for children. Mm-hmm. And, and believing in them, right? Giving them a chance just to see what happens. You know, they can do so much if if we believe that they can, and and we tell them that they can as well. Yeah. No, that that's true because I think they need to listen to it. They need to keep hearing that again and again because I keep saying, no, if, if 
if adults say that you can, then you will. It's it's so, it's not rocket science. It's <laughs> common sense, and it just has to become common practice. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Kiran, for joining me today. And um, before I let you go, you know, uh, what are some uh, plans in the pipeline? Uh, of course, there's something big happening in Malaysia. I'm really excited to hear that. So we'll keep yeah. in touch for that. But what else is uh, uh, in the pipeline? Well, actually, we, we're super excited that, in fact, in Malaysia, also we, we're supporting this lovely school, Kindity, uh, to reimagine and become, in a way, an ICANN school. And a lot of it I keep seeing because I was had the opportunity to come and visit it uh, in May as well. But there's so much of, of universal need. I see it in Malaysia. I see it across the world. The idea of the heart. And I see it when, when a school starts, and I understand the school that you're also uh, a part of, it starts with the heart. And I can see the difference it does to the children. I've walked into that school, Kinditi, and I see the charm. I see the laughter. I see the joy. And my God, it, they're such powerful ingredients for learning. You know, so for me to be able to serve this idea to a lot more schools across the world will be is part of the plan uh, to make sure that Design for Change reaches every child. We have a billion children on the planet. I would like a billion children to be able to believe that they can make the world a better place. So there's a lot to do. I've, I've only in 63 countries. I have 190 to do. So <laughs> that's, that's a, I, I am not resting anytime soon. Okay, all right. And we'll definitely keep in touch to see, you know, how you're um, breaching, you know, all those other different countries out there. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kiran, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Kiran Birsetti. She is the founder and director of the Riverside School and also for Design for Change. If you'd like to find out more, just head to schoolriverside.com. Uh, you guys are, of course, on social media everywhere. I highly recommend everyone goes and watches uh, that TED Talk that you gave. Uh, just search for Kiran's name. You will find it. And if you miss any part of our show today you can always download the podcast at bfm.my slash learn or you can find it on the bfm app this has been out of the box on the bigger picture bfm 89.9 thank you for listening to this podcast to find more great interviews go to bfm.my or find us on itunes bfm 89.9 the business station